Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts, Jordana Osban, here with my friend, Chabruta Ann Gordon. Our daf today, Masachat Nizarin, daf Samech Zion, page 67. Well, we want to remind everybody about our end of the year fundraiser. Uh, if you're listening this tomorrow, it's going to be December 30th. Uh, you have two days left to help support our good work at Talking Talmud. There's information on our Facebook page of where you can make a donation. Uh, we'll also post one in the uh, description of this um, of this episode. And we really want to thank all of our listeners for their continued support uh, so that we can bring you this wonderful work uh, throughout the year. And we're looking forward to continue learning with you uh, coming up in 2023. Uh, and it's going to be almost our three-year anniversary, which is very hard to believe. Um, so today we're going to start a new chapter, a new parak, the 10th parak of Nadarim. And this parak sort of shifts gears a little bit. Uh, we have spent a lot of time up until now talking about, in a very granular way, I know that's the word Anne and I keep using, specifics about different type of Nadarim, different ways language is used. What does it mean if you use that type of language within a Nadar? What does it include? What does it not include? And here we get to a totally different type of law around Nidarim, which is uh, hafara, which is the idea that a husband or a father can revoke their wife or their daughter's nedar. Um, and so this is a set of halachot of laws that we see in Bamidbar in Numbers chapter 30, verses 2 through 17. And basically what the idea is, is that a girl, until she is an adult, but while she is still a katana, or even a na'ara, and we've talked about that before, what all that could mean, um, that her father, if she were to make a neder, basically is allowed to revoke that neder. Um, once she's married, her husband has that right as well. What this parak is going to start off with is talking about sort of this in-between stage, right? Which would be uh, a girl who is, or let's say uh, an unmarried girl who has not yet gotten to a stage of being an adult, okay? She's not a Bogaret yet. And she's done the first half of the marriage, uh, which is, you know, Erosin or Kedushin. Those are both of the terms that we use for that first half, which today we do as one ceremony, but it's the beginning part when he puts the ring on her finger and says, all right, I'm the Kedushetli. Um, And then it becomes this sort of in-between phase because sort of her father can, you know, do this where he could revoke a neder and the husband can as well. It's only when she's fully married after she's completed the second half of the marriage ceremony, right? The Nisuin, then her husband is the only one who could revoke the neder. And so at this stage where she's just, uh, has just completed Erosin, both the father and the husband would have to agree to revoke this particular net there. And that's what a lot of what this parak is going to discuss. Um, and it gets a little bit complicated. Um, I think one thing that's interesting to talk about, though, is that revoking a net there is very different than the idea that we saw before about going to a chacham or to chachamim, right? Going to some type of sage and having them make the nether mutar, saying that it's permitted, as opposed to what's happening here, it's called they declare it mufar or making it actually revoked. Um, and I think one way to think about this is that when you say something is mutar, that it's permitted, um, it means that it's an annulment. It means it's like the vow never actually happened. Whereas when we say it's mufar, it means that it, the vow happened, 
right? But we're stopping the woman from, or the girl from having to continue it. And so that language distinction is actually very, very different. And what the sage does when he makes something motar is very different than what the father or the husband has a right to do when they make a nether mufar. Now, we also want to acknowledge, and we'll spend some more time talking about this, this is one of the laws in the Torah that, let's be honest, it makes us uncomfortable, right? Like the idea that, you know, I don't know so much that necessarily the idea that the father has this, you know, power over their daughter, or that why doesn't he have this power over his son? Um, but certainly the idea that the husband does uh, makes many people uncomfortable. It's clear from the commentators that this is not something that was supposed to be sort of invoked. Is that like a weird thing to say when I keep using the word revoke? I'm not trying to rhyme on purpose, okay? <laughs> but um, it's not something that's supposed to be used just to be used. It's really supposed to be used when the neder somehow impacts how that person functions within the household. So that's why the father could revoke it, and that's why the husband could revoke it. But we'll see how this actually plays out, uh, you know, when we start to actually uh, learn this particular parrot. Um, and anything that you want to add to this before we uh, start the first Mishnah? So I think it will be my turn to be, you know, more upset, let's say, about the way the this particular halacha is borne out. I, I don't really mean borne out, right? Nowadays, this is, I think, fairly negligible under most people's living circumstances and vowing circumstances. But, you know, we had all of this upset. And, you know, I think a lot of people felt... Uh, kind of chagrined at what's going on in the Dapem of the Gemara, in Yavamot, in Ketubot, and various other places, I have always found this Haferat Nidarim thing, this concept, this practice, the idea that the father can nullify the vow of an adult, right? Meaning, I'm not talking about if a child says something foolish, because a child saying something foolish isn't binding anyway, because that kid is not yet bar mitzvah, bat mitzvah. We're talking girls, right? So this the phenomenon of a father being able to do it and not a mother being able to do it, right? It's not that parents do this for children is, I think, has always been of concern to me. And all the more so this situation of, but her husband can, but she can't do it for her husband, right? Like, it's one of the the lack of parity here. Parity, like, you know, what's a, not not equality, what's the word I want? Equity is is of concern to me. Like in the way that it doesn't fully make sense to me because I have such a very fundamentally different understanding of the dynamic between the genders in our day and age, even accepting a great deal of, you know, all of traditional Orthodox Judaism. And yet this seems to be, this feels I don't know. Like an, this feels like an extreme that, that, that I think that's what's problematic. It feels like a real extreme. I think right. it feels belittling to me. And that's the thing that gets me. Okay. Right, like I think that's a fair description. Right, it's not having agency. I mean, which right. is right. a bullying exactly. experience. It's not having agency, as opposed right. to well, simply having systems in place. But right. let's see the text, and let's perhaps, text. perhaps I will have my my understanding revised as we go through the parrot. So, if we have, as you've described, Yordana, we have a Nara Morsa, this betrothed young woman. She is, you know more than modern day engagement and less than a full marriage. It's a formal act of betrothal. Both her husband and her, both her father and her husband to be, right? Who we're going to just refer to here as her husband, 
um, will will um, what did you say revoke? They will ref- revoke her vows. And of course, the discussion here is going to be: is does this need to be? Or the presumption is that it needs to be both of them together. So as opposed to just either one of them. The Mishnah goes on. Um, I should have said that Mishnah really begins at the bottom of the previous daf. Now we're at the very top of, of Ahmed Aleph. Hefer ha'av v'lo hefer ha'bal. Hefer ha'bal v'lo hefer ha'av e'no mufar. So now it's very clear that it really does mean both of them at the same time. That if the father did this revoking, and the husband did not, or the husband did, and the father did not, then that vow stands. It is not revoked. And there's no need to say, you know, it's not, it's not, um, it's not, it doesn't, it's not upheld if only one of them were to uphold it, to, to ratify the vow. So the point here is, again, this, status of this woman is an in-between status. She is kind of still under her father's auspices, so therefore he is one of the, he is necessary to revoke the vow, and she is kind of under the husband-to-be's auspices, and therefore he is also necessary to revoke the vow. The Gemara goes, gets into this, and there's a lot of, like, let's drill down to figure out exactly what's going on with the requirement of both of these parties. And in fact, that's where we begin. Hainu Resha, right? When the Mishnah says that if the father were to revoke the vow and the husband did not revoke the vow or vice versa, and the vow is not nullified, then the Gemara is going to say, Hainu Resha, is not this the same case as the first statement in the Mishnah, Nara Morsa Avio Uvala Meaning, what does the Mishnah need to reiterate the same point in greater detail when it's already made it in simple detail? Um, so the Mishnah said, the Gemara says that the Mishnah needs that second phrasing because otherwise you might say that the Mishnah is teaching either or, right? The way I read it to begin with, where I said, look, there's a question here is it either or, or does it require both? And so, therefore, the Mishnah comes to make it very clear that it has to be both. Um, okay, and then at the end of the Mishnah, it says. We don't have to say that it is not nullified if one of them, in fact, ratified the vow. Lama li lamitna. And so now the, the Gemara wants to know why do we have to say this at all? If we've already established that it takes both of them to revoke the vow, then why do you have to say that if one of them didn't revoke the vow, it's not revoked? Hashta yishlomar hefer klum. So the point is that if one of them were to revoke the vow, and without the other one, and nothing has happened, the vow is not nullified. But what about um, what if one of them ratified it, meaning like upheld it, said, this vow is going to go forward, but only one of them did. So the mission wants, the Gemara wants to explain why does the mission need to teach this specifically in terms of to say that the vow is not nullified, to say that the vow is in fact upheld, Again, it should be, it should be just basic. It's already understood. So the Gemara answers, no, no. He is terichle. We do need it. It does need to be said. What if they have a dispute? One of them is uh, revokes it, and one of them upholds it. And then the person who ratified it goes back on himself and says, "All right, let's." negate the ratification, let's un- let's revoke the whole vow. 
Do you have to do that? Or does is it already fundamentally done? My Meaning, in case you would want to say that the person who ratified the vow is is up like is bound by that, right? What about the fact that he's uprooted it? Can can he then go forward with it? Kamashman the So the Mishnah says no, they nullify it or revoke it rather. They revoke it at the same time, and by doing so, the fact that there had been previous upholding no longer matters. Uh, you know, look, I think this is interesting because they're really explicit to tell us, like you said, that they need both. She needs both of them. <laughs> you know, they want to make it clear that everyone understands that. Yeah. And I would say that maybe we could understand here some protection for this woman. Right. Meaning I don't really understand why either of these men should have the right to undo her vow. But once one of them is going to be undoing the vow, it's not undone unless the other one agrees. And if there would be some kind of conflict there, right, that's why I feel like maybe it kicks in to protect her from from kind of being removed from her own statements. Yeah, well, I'm just going to read one other part here in the Gemara. You know, we've seen very little scriptural verse uh, being invoked here. And the Gemara then is going to actually want to talk about to figure out, like, what the actual source for this is. Not going to read the whole section about it, but it just starts off by saying, From where do we know, right, that this Naram Arusa, right, this, you know, this girl who had Erosin done, that her father and husband both have to revoke the vow. So they, they basically quote uh, this pasuk here um, that, you know, we said, well, they, they're basically, they want you to look at three pasukim. They only quote the beginning of it, which is in Bamidbar chapter 30, verses seven through nine, that basically says, if she shall marry a man and her vows are on her and her husband hears her, if on the day that her husband hears her, he should restrain, he should restrain her and revoke her vow, then Hashem forgives her. So this is where we get that Na'ara, who's an Arusa, her father and her husband have to revoke that jointly. Now, the Gemara is going to debate this. Right, maybe this is the verse that's really about a fully married woman, right? And they try to find maybe another pasuk. But I think it's interesting to see, uh, you know, just pointing out this, and then this discussion goes on all for the next of Amud Bet um, and up until the next stop. What again in Nidarim, we've seen very little psukim brought in. Um, and it, you know, because I think Nidarim itself doesn't really have a lot of psukim around it. It's this particular part of Nidarim that is most extensively written about in the Torah itself. Yeah, and it's necessary, right? That's why it's there. Right, because it's the most confusing uh, part. Or I don't want to say confusing part. It's the part that needs the most elaboration. This is the most confusing case about it. Like, how does it actually work if we're going to say that a father or a husband can have agency over this area of a Nara or a grown woman's life? Right, exactly. And all the simple cases are very easily understood from the complicated case. Right. And, and, and 
But again, I just find it fascinating. This is really what the Torah spends its time on and not on Nadarim in general. Well, that's our top discussion for the day. Rank us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Revenue Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hodge website. Let us know what you thought about this stuff on our Talking Time on Facebook page and in tomorrow, go and learn. Thank you.